Really, my opening illustration here has to do with politics. Um, so but let's just start with a bit of a survey. How many of you here would consider yourselves what you would uh, deem a political junkie? You know, you're a self-described, you just, you kind of know what's going on, and you can, you can vote others in if you want, but how many would be willing to admit, yeah, I, I'm a bit of a political junkie? Just like three? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, my, my hand was up, just, just, uh, just to say, but okay. Uh, how many would say, well, you know, I, I try to be informed, but I, I'm really not obsessed. I, I, I am an informed individual. I'm an informed citizen. I know what's going on, but I'm, I'm really not obsessed with politics. How many fit that category? Okay, okay, good. Doing your, your civic duty. Now, here is my daughter's word of the day from yesterday. How many of you are oblivious? All right, fantastic. <laughs> well, we'll have uh, PoliSci 101 uh, at 11 o'clock, and so go on ahead and come. We'll, we'll talk about politics. And um, anyways, we, we do live in turbulent days, but it helps to know kind of where our crowd is at as I, as I talk of uh, so, some, just to re reference our, our political scene today, some as we get into the message this morning, I don't want to go too deep, but I think, I think it'll be appropriate for all of us. But certainly, we do live in turbulent days. And, and frankly, if you were oblivious to politics before about a year ago, you know, last March, you, know, you may have been able to have just kind of lived and, and gotten along. But politics have come pretty close to home just with all of the different things that have been happening and uh, the declarations that follow the science, which unfortunately keeps changing, and it keeps lining up with a certain political parties priorities, but, uh, you know, you'll follow the science is, is what they're saying, and, and no longer can you have just a, an objective truth statement. There's much in, in, the, in society around that has been turned upon its head and has become very political. And uh, from the, you know, the, the, the founding principles of the acronym BLM, or, you know, that, that phrase, I think we're all familiar with that, Black Lives Matter, and, and certainly on its face, absolutely, black lives do matter. So do every other color of life that is out there. But BLM as an entity is um, pushing its agenda and uh, it's going to come to a city near you. Uh, not, not necessarily in, in riots per se, but over the weekend, Atlanta decided that they could, or not, not necessarily Atlanta, but the, uh, the MLB, which ironically is BLM backwards, but the Major League Baseball, said that they are not going to play their all-star game in Atlanta because of political reasons. And so things have gotten very much entrenched in culture around us and society, and, and we're dealing with just these realities that are going to impact our lives. Not only do you, you go from BLM to MLB, from razors to beverages, Coca-Cola has chosen to become very much a, a woke-a-cola. And I, I know I'm kind of throwing out terms out there that, that you may not follow totally, but they're po very politically correct. And it's all on one side of the aisle. Harry's razors. I enjoy a good tight shave. I enjoy using Harry's razors. But they've come out. And, and they've now gotten into the political statement as well. And it's just, OK, can I get a shave without worrying about who you vote for, and, and leave me alone in who I vote for. And yet, that's, that's not exactly where we're at. Um, in, in all of these things, politics surround us. 
And if you kind of dig in a little bit beyond what's happening on the surface, you realize that there's a socialist playbook. It's, it's the exact same playbook that's been used to um, enslave populations for the last 100 to 150 years. And there's very little creativity in it. It's, it's a race war. It's, it's just turning one thing upon the other. And, you know, I, before the last year and a half, there, there would be points in my own life where I would look at history and wonder, what was going through the minds of the people in pre-World War II Germany? How did Hitler rise to the position that he had, and how was he able to so indoctrinate people that he was able to accomplish all that he, he did in, in such a really short time frame? Obviously, there was a lot of things at play in all of that, but, but how did we get there? And, and looking at other historical periods and, and looking back and realizing that the people that forget their history is a people that is doomed to repeat that history and realizing, okay, there are lessons to be learned from history and there are things that we need to understand and to know. Going back even further than World War II, so in the last 100 years, going back and just looking at the Bible, how do we have these cycles in the book of Judges where it's just one bad thing after another and you come to the end of Judges and you're just, wow, that's bad. And uh, these, these realizations that there are generational cycles that take place and really... Uh, this is not a political rally to be able to encourage us to say, all right, let's go out and let's, let, let's win some elections. Let's, let's do these other things. And I, I think we understand our, our theological framework and the grid that we have been given here over the, last, over the course of this school year, whether it be at um, the Victory Conference or pastor's messages on Sunday morning or even here on this platform, the grid that we've been given, we understand our deliverance is not going to come from a state house, though yes, we do need to be involved in the political process as much as able, go vote. But that's not where America's salvation is going to come from. We understand that, we know that. And yet, there are some decisions that we individually need to make that apply to each one individually to keep each one on the path that God has a victory for you. It's not enough to be part of a societal movement. We need individuals. On Friday, January 20th, 1961, at an age of 43 years and 236 days, the youngest man to be elected president of the United States in a speech that lasted 13 minutes and 30 seconds, John F. Kennedy became the 35th president of the United States. His inaugural address included those famous lines, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. A little bit of context from that speech. Let me just read a paragraph before that famous line. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, 
Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. His speech continued, and I'll read just the next sentence. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. You know, if an inspiring and an aspiring young man from the Boston suburbs could stand before America as our 35th president and could really inspire in a whole generation in an ideal, a purpose of asking not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. How much more are we who know the Lord called upon to ask not what can be done for us, but what can we do for him? You're going to turn this morning to Genesis chapter 6. The, the title of today's message is The Conjunction Contrast. The Conjunction Contrast. As I was reading through the first chapters of Genesis back in the beginning of the, the year, we were facing a lot of upheaval and unrest. And for those of you that don't follow politics at all, President Trump was the president for the last four years. We have a new president, <laughs> Joe Biden. There was an election in November. I trust you voted. There was an inauguration in January. Just prior to that inauguration, there was a riot in Washington, D.C. We know that. And as, as all of that was happening, I was entering into just the realities of this new year. And there were some little words that stood out in this story of Noah that I want to focus on today that really provide a contrast. And so as we see the contrast... As we look at Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, I trust that each one will walk away with some points of application that I believe the Lord has for each one of us. We're actually not going to read the entirety of Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. I think we're familiar with the story. We'll read a few points here and there, read a few verses, but let me begin here with a word of prayer, just asking that the Lord would work in each one of our hearts. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your goodness to each one of us. I thank you for raising us up for such a time as this. Lord, I pray that there would be in the heart of each one not a fear of the future or even a sense of holding back, but would we each embrace the opportunity that we have to live right now. Now, Lord, would we understand that your power is sufficient for the task that you call each one of us to, but that, Lord, your calling is to each one of us individually. And you're wanting to do a great work through each life. And yes, the power of lives combined can be significant, but the power of individuals who each say, yes, I'm going to do right, is exactly what you're looking for. And so, Lord, I pray that you would raise up people who would be like Noah, young men and young ladies, who without fear of men's opinion, without thought of even the cost, would, raise, would rise up in their generation to be all that you want them to be. Bless now this message, I pray, and I ask this in your name. Amen. The conjunction contrast. You see here, as I've kind of given a little bit of a synopsis of our own today, we're living in an age where right has been called wrong, and wrong is celebrated, and, and unless you celebrate the wrong, you are, you are sidelined, and you are canceled, and you are uh, pursued as even an evil person. And we wonder, how is this possible? And yet we look at this passage, kind of, there, there are 
several verses here at the end of Genesis chapter 5, before you come to Genesis chapter 6, verse number 8, and they paint a bleak picture. We're going to read them, but just before we do, let's be reminded of what takes place here in Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you've got creation. We know that, right? Chapter content, there we go. Creation happens. Chapter 3, the fall. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel. And really, right there in the beginning pages of the book of Genesis, you have right out of the gate, not only the eating of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, but then murder follows right after that. It's just like, wow, God's perfect creation already marred to its core. Then you come to the end of chapter 4, and you have just the, the evil of Cain's line and all that's happening with Lamech and, and, and just that, that self-sufficient, independent-of-God attitude. You come to the last couple of verses of chapter 4. Adam knew his wife again. She bare a son and called his name Seth. And there you have Seth being born and, and that glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 4. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's in, in response to Seth's son Enos being born. Then you come to the first of numerous genealogies and generations recorded throughout the Word of God. Here in Genesis chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And you see this genealogical line, you look at these different names, and, and this Genesis chapter 5, the, the last couple of verses of chapter 4 into chapter 6, covers a time frame of 1,500 years. It's really amazing, just the amount of time that is encapsulated in this one chunk. And um, you see this line. And there are some glimmers of hope as you go through these different names. And, and in reality, while we might know some more than others, Methuselah or Enoch, each one of these were a key component of a line that passed truth from one generation to the next. But that brings us to Genesis chapter 6. In the opening lines here, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, and I'm not going to determine for you today what all of that means in, in looking at chapter 6, verse number 4, who is what and what is what. And some are going to say, well, it was uh, wicked men and, and godly ladies or wicked uh, ladies and godly men or maybe it was angels or maybe it was this or maybe it was that. And frankly, that's, that's not really my purpose, so I'm not going to even delve into it. Feel free to catch me later if you have an opinion one way or the other on it. I have come to a spot where I believe that it, it doesn't impact the uh, key doctrines of the faith and I'll get to heaven and, and get a final answer on exactly what this is all about. But that brings us to chapter 6, verse number 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now that one I can understand. And frankly, we could spend a lot of time arguing back and forth on, on verses 3 and 4. 
we come to a place where we realize that God looked down at the earth that he had created and he saw wickedness of man great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for repenteth me that I have made them. And we come to that point and we think, how low can it go? How, how far can we go? And we see just the reality of the devastation that is being described here in this passage. And we realize that as we look at our own society, at our own culture, at our own period of time in which we live in history, and we look around us and we see really, I'm not going to take time to go there, but we see the outworkings of Romans chapter 1, where you have a people who knew God and yet glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. And that little phrase right there is exhortation enough that we make sure that we who know God glorify him as God and that we find that a spirit of thankfulness is a key component to maintaining a right relationship with God. And this is very much a side note, but if you have a complaining spirit, if you have an ungrateful spirit, that is sin. A thankful spirit is going to be a mark of a spirit-filled individual. But we have in Romans chapter 1 this group of people described who knew God yet glorified him not as God, forgot who he was, ending up in the end of that committing suicide on a societal level where everything just unravels and they leave what is natural and they leave what is right and they leave what is appropriate and they call wrong right and they call right wrong and everything is backwards. And I am going to take just a little bit of time here to talk about this because this really does have a correlation to what we see in Genesis chapter 6 in those, first, in those first verses and just the darkness. And the truth is, the darkness and the, and, the, and the men around us are not the problem. It's Satan and his blinding of them that is the problem. They need to be redeemed. They need to be rescued. I heard recently of... A, an experiment that happened in the 1950s where a group of scientists who were studying optics wondered if they could actually retrain the brain to receive optical images and compute them differently. So let me just explain briefly. Optics is an absolutely astonishing study. But when your eye receivers receive light and the messages, and, and, and it's taking it in as an image, the image enters the optical nerves and then is inverted. So that by the time it gets to the back of your eyeball, the image that you're seeing is actually inverted. It's upside down. It, it has to do with just the science of how optics work. It would be true of your cameras, true of other things. And um, so it is with your, with your eye. It hits the back of the eyeball upside down, the signals from there have to go to your brain, and your brain has to process and invert everything so that you're all right side up. <laughs> Should be quite an awkward world, right? And as, as these researchers were studying this out, they drew straws or somehow picked one man that would be the 
lucky individual to wear the inversion glasses. And over the course of the experiment, I believe it ran for about two months, he had to, for every waking moment, have these goggles that had been made to, before the images reached the eyeball, invert them. So using mirrors and lenses, the, the images were coming into his eyes inverted. Then his eyes, not realizing that they were already inverted, would continue to do what it normally did, and it would invert. And so you can imagine this man who, having just put on these inversion glasses, was directed over to a chair and was told to sit down. The awkwardness with which he sat down is actually quite funny. <laughs> he was seated at a desk. His fellow researcher rolled a pool ball to him, just very nice and slowly across the desk. Now remember, everything's inverted. He, he thinks he's in an upside-down world. The ball is rolling here. He's grabbing over here. And literally, everything in his life was upside down. He said it gave him the worst case of seasickness you could ever imagine. <laughs> well, that experiment continued. He had to go through life because ultimately he wanted to know if his mind would, would be able to train itself to realize that it was being tricked. And after two weeks, really just suddenly, it wasn't like he was in a halfway upright world, but after about two weeks, his brain did a total flip. And even though it looked funny to have these goggles on, he was able to walk to work in the morning. He was able to go through life completely functioning. He also then decided, okay, well, if I can walk to work, that's pretty easy, right? Can I ride a motorcycle? <laughs> so they took him out to a desert space where there was nothing around, and they put him on a motorcycle, and he was confident at this point. He said, yeah, I, I can do this. It's, my, my, my brain has been trained. So away he went on his motorcycle, able to, to ride several laps around their little tractor they had put up, no problem. Like, great, you can walk to work, you can ride a motorcycle. What's the last horizon that we could clear to, to make sure that you really are, are not fooling us in this? He said, oh, strap him in an airplane. See how he does in an airplane where everything has to just, you know, it has to work. You have to, you have to understand your horizon. You have to know everything. You get turned over in an airplane, boy, bad news. And sure enough, he, he was there in an airplane. He was, he was the pilot, but he had a co-pilot who could take over the controls if he needed to. He was able to fly that airplane. He was up in the air for about an hour and brought it in for a landing. And he did everything from start to finish with that airplane. And then he had to take the glasses off and go through that whole process in reverse. <laughs> Thankfully, his mind you know, was able to retrain itself right at the end. But here, here's what I, I give that illustration for. There, there comes a point as Satan is blinding the eyes of the people around us, they think that what they believe is right. And they believe it with all their heart because they've been blinded. And just like the optics of that illustration can actually trick his mind into thinking that he's in an upside-down world and then come to a spot where, no, I'm actually in a right-side-up world. Um, so Satan has blinded the minds and the hearts of people around us. And so as we read Genesis chapter 6 and we see the wickedness of men and whatever was taking place in verses 1 through 4, we come to verse number 5. God saw the wickedness of man that it was great in the earth. And frankly, as God looks at what's happening in America right now, there is great wickedness and it grieves the heart of God. But we come, first of all, to the conjunction contrast number one. Conjunctions, little tiny joining words in the English language. Verse number eight. 
but Noah. You know, if Satan works with the masses, and that is his mode of operation, Satan worked with masses to get them to declare before the crucifixion of Christ, his blood be upon us and upon our children. How blinded could they be to come to that statement? And as I sat and watched over Saturday and Sunday the demonstration and just the presentation of that Easter truth once again, how my heart was moved. But oh, to think of the, the pain and, and the suffering that our Savior went through, but to think of how so many people could be blinded, and so many people could declare that. And what Satan is wanting to do is he's wanting to keep masses together that just kind of blindly one follows the other, and they follow the leader. You know, if you were to get any one of those individuals to pause for a moment as they declared, his blood be upon us and upon our children, I think they would have woken up and said, wait a minute, what are we saying? This makes no sense. None whatsoever. Yeah, that's how, God, that's how Satan operates. He, he blinds the masses. He's the master there. But God uses individuals. And in, the, in this dark scene, you have Noah rising up. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Our first point here, that's simple. In contrast to the wickedness of the world around, there was a man who said, God, here I am. You know, God didn't send out resumes and say, okay, I need a boat builder. Who's going to be my boat builder? No, God found Noah because Noah was walking with God before God had a job for him. Noah came to a place where he realized, I don't need to cave in. I don't need to go along. I don't have to live in this upside down world. I can live in victory. And when God assessed the condition of the world around him, he realized in Noah was a righteous man. Verse number 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. In contrast to the world around, and I can say that with solid evidence, there was a world full of people. Only eight got on the ark. You know, if you, if you think you feel kind of singled out, you think you feel a little bit alone, and you feel like, well, you know, I, I kind of... Think about Noah for a few minutes. He had to build a boat for 120 years, a long ways away from water, talking about water coming out of the sky. He was crazy. But he was obeying God. But Noah, of the darkness of that canvas, of how dark the day was, let us not... Say, woe is me, I wish I lived, and, and, and name whatever time frame. We are living in a great time of God's opportunity. And I trust that your name could be placed on that blank, but Matt Forster. But your name found grace in the eyes of God. You know, as much as this room is important, you as an individual are the priority that God is looking at. Not will this class or will this group or will this, this student body make a difference? Will you? I'm far enough removed, and I, I didn't sit where you're at that long ago, but I'm far enough removed to realize that some of my own classmates who sat next to me haven't stayed the course. 
And, and I'm not talking about, oh, they, they may do this a little differently or that a little differently. You know, I'm talking about some who have totally turned their back on God. Why? How? Well, it was a failure to understand this principle that God works with individuals and God calls each one of us in the context of our culture, in the context of our society, in the context of where we are at to find grace in his eyes. Noah here quickly was a righteous man. He was just, not on his own merit, but through faith in God. And we have other passages throughout Scripture that speak of the just and righteous condition of this man. So his relationship with God was one that was righteous. We find Noah listening very carefully to God. And then the last verse of chapter 6, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. What are these marks of a just man? What are going to be the marks that are going to mark your life if you would be the one who could stand in contrast to a dark and dying world as but Noah? Number one, you need to be attentive Number two, you need to be completely obedient, attentive. What is it that God is saying? Are you listening? Are you aware? Are you responding to what God is doing? And then are you doing it? Noah did it all the way. He was obedient and all. There was, there was no limit to what Noah would do. And believe me, I'm sure there were days where he wondered. I'm sure there were days where he was questioned. I know there were times where he, had, he was made of the same stuff that you and I are made of, but he had a vision from God, and he wasn't going to let anything distract him from that. But Noah, not only was he righteous or just before God, but it also states here in verse number nine, he was a perfect man in his generations. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he was sinless. It doesn't mean that he was without any error. No, he was blameless. There was no sense of being able to lay blame at his feet. Noah lived out his faith. He demonstrated to the world around the fact that he believed what God said and he did what God commanded. He lived out his faith. He also proclaimed the deliverance. We see here Noah's communication to the lost world around and we see in other passages where Noah was called a preacher where he proclaimed truth to a world around. Noah lived without blame before his generation you know, in the contrast to the world and its darkness, God is looking for some but Noahs who will walk rightly related to their God and rightly related to the world around. Individuals who, yes, it's important what the person next to you on this side and what the person next to you on this side does, but you really can't control that. Oh, you can encourage and you can keep accountable and you, you are a key player in just coming alongside and saying, hey, what is God teaching you? And, and encouraging and, and stirring up. But at the end of the day, you are responsible for you. And you, as an individual, need to say, yes, I'm going to listen to my God. I'm going to obey him. I'm also going to be blameless. I'm going to communicate truth. I'm going to proclaim the deliverance of my Savior. It brings us very quickly here. You know the story of what takes place here in, in chapter 6 as, as God gave the, the specific instructions, make thee an ark of gopher wood. You know, you sing the, the little song of making that ark, and, and, and he makes the ark, and then all the animals come, and they, they get on that ark. Do you think there were points in that journey where Noah wondered, where Noah was tempted to doubt, where Noah 
was at a place where he said, yes, God has spoken to me and I believe God's word, but what's the next step? He got on that boat. The door closed. Let me read briefly just a little synopsis from a geological perspective of what took place in that um, earth, uh, in that time of the, the flood happening when the earth is broken up. When an earthquake happens underwater, a tsunami is formed. In an open ocean, a boat on the surface would experience a gentle movement upward. But once the tsunami reaches a shallow shoreline, the water builds up, creating a wall of water. A the tsunami that hit Japan in March of 2011 displaced the water below the ocean bottom about 300 feet, creating a 120-foot wave which crashed onto the shore and killed some 15,000 people. 30-foot displacement, 124-foot tall wave. Now imagine the tsunamis during the flood with earth movements of 10,000 feet. The resulting tsunamis would pulverize everything in its path and cover entire continents. Imagine a wall of water dwarfing the tallest building on earth. Earthquakes during the flood would have been unstoppably destructive. The safest place to be during the flood would have been on the ark in the middle of the ocean. The flood of the ancient world was truly a horrific event. And here you have Noah obeying the commands of God and getting in that boat and the door is closed. And it didn't start raining as soon as the door was closed. There were a few days. Now what? Maybe there was some wondering. Okay, I, I, all these animals, that, that was a miracle. Wow, that door, that, that was a miracle. But now what? And then suddenly the pitter-patter on, on the roof of that ark and the realization that what God had said was coming to pass and that God, even after 120 years, was true to his word and the outside world was destroyed. But you know, Noah didn't have an actual navigation compass there on the ark. He didn't know where he was going to land. He didn't know what was going to be next. Can you imagine being cooped up on the ark for a whole year? That's 365 days. We had lockdowns about a year ago. You remember that? Do you remember that? How many of you had animals in your home? Like, like livestock, not, not a hamster or a goldfish or <laughs> even a dog. How, how many of you had, you know, like livestock? Chickens. All right. In, in your home? Oh, there you go. Nice. All right. <laughs> little chicks? Okay, okay, little chicks. All right, good. All right, so, so there we go. Can you imagine? 365 days. Smelly. Tight. Uncertain. What's next? The rain was 40 days. Okay, it's done raining. Now what? Can we get out yet already? You know, just... Then you come to Genesis chapter 8. Verse number 1, another conjunction. Verse 24 of chapter 7, The waters prevailed upon the earth in 150 days. Verse number 1 of chapter 8, And God. And God. You know, no matter how dark the day is, no matter what is going on, there is a God in heaven who controls the floods, and he's at, he's at work. He remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. And we have this reality of God remembering. Turn briefly to, uh, to Psalm chapter 29. Some have, some have described this psalm as David's response to a great thunderstorm, and really it's almost like a... a, a psalm form 
of the song, How Great Thou Art. Uh, you have in verse, verses 1 and 2, Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And, and you have the psalmist ascribing the greatness and the glory to God that he deserves. And then he goes on in the next several verses and he describes just what's happening in nature around us. And he describes God's greatness happening in the world around you. You come to the end of the chapter verses 10 and 11, the Lord sitteth upon the flood. And, and many scholars would point that back either directly referring to the great deluge, referring to Noah's flood or to other floods like it, but realizing that the Lord sits enthroned upon the flood. The Lord is the one who is at, in control of everything. And if God can control nature, and if God can control what happens in the world around us, and he sits enthroned, and you, you finish the verse, the Lord sitteth king forever. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Turn back to Genesis chapter 8. If God sits upon the flood, he certainly sits in control of what's happening in your life right now. And he can be trusted for whatever he calls you to do. He will provide the path forward for you. You can trust him. And God remembered Noah and pulled him, gave him deliverance from that flood. That brings us here in conclusion. I want to read just a simple little statement by Alexander McLaren in, in response to this passage here in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. Alexander McLaren states, For 120 years the wits laughed and the common sense people wondered, and the patient saint went on hammering and pitching at his ark. But one morning it began to rain, and by degrees somehow Noah did not seem quite such a fool. The jest would look rather different when the water was up to the knees of the jesters and their sarcasms would stick in their throats as they drowned. So it is always, so it will be at the last great day. The men who live for the future by faith in Christ will be found out to have been the wise men when the future has become the present and the present has become the past and is gone forever." While they who had no aims beyond the things of time, which are now sunk beneath the dreary horizon, will awake too late to the conviction that they are outside the ark of safety and that their truest epitaph is, thou fool. There's a world around us that needs to be reached. And God is calling upon individuals who will say, but me. Are you walking with him? Are you experiencing his deliverance? Are you obeying him in all? And are you resting in confidence in the one who has called you will deliver? And he is in control of the storm. You know, 2021 in America, there are opportunities around us. And frankly, America pales in comparison to what's happening in other places of the world. I think of what's taking place in Myanmar. My heart goes out for the believers there and even just for the, the people. There are other places around the world where there's a lot more going on than what's happening right here in America right now. But you know, God is in control of it all. And if things get worse in America, God is in control. But it's not a matter of politics. It's a matter of God's people saying, yes, here am I. I'll be a Noah to make a difference in my day. Would you be that one? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help each one to be that Noah, to say, yes, God, the day may, may be dark. But I'll stand for you. And would we each rest in the confidence of a God who delivers through the storm.
who controls the flood. I pray this in your name.